uh, to really um, get into any discussion of Calvinism, I really do think um, the first place you need to start is you need to start with their foundational doctrine of TULIP. Um, I'm assuming many of you are very familiar with some of the concepts. Um, however, by way of review, uh, the word TULIP is a um, is all the first letters and they mean something. So the T stands for total depravity. Um, what that means is more accurately described as a total inherited depravity, which means that everyone is born, in their opinion, sinful and full of sin, incapable of even recognizing or doing good. They believe that um, there is no such thing as innocence and that humans are altogether bad. Um, so this idea of total depravity then leads one to say, well, you're unconditionally elected. That's what the U stands for in TULIP. And that kind of makes sense, right? If it, if, if it is impossible for a human to be born and able to recognize what is good and to choose what is good, the only way that can God can fairly determine whether or not one should be saved is random and arbitrary choice. And that's what unconditional election means, that God randomly chose the elect from the beginning of time to be saved. Now, um, we'll talk about this a little bit more, but I do want to say that an unconditional election you find kind of under its umbrella two more very, two more uh, very central concepts to the Calvinist framework, and that is this concept of predestination, namely that you were predestined, you're predetermined, you're pre-known to be saved. And on top of that, they also believe, um, as a result of unconditional election, that you cannot earn your salvation, which is, of course, a biblical concept, but they go so far to say that the only thing that can make you be saved is faith. And they go even farther with that, and they say, you can't even have faith until you're saved. So it's kind of a weird circular loop that they have there, and we can discuss that later. But that really leads us into the L of TULIP, limited atonement. And that makes sense, too, if you think about it. If a certain number of people were picked at the beginning of time, then there's only a limited number of people who are going to have their sins atoned for. So when Jesus Christ died on the cross, he only died for a certain number of people. He didn't die for the sins of the whole world. And there's even a certain sense in which many Calvinists, I'm not going to say all of them, believe that he didn't even die for all of your sins. There's still sins that you carry with you and that you can't ever shed off. And that the only reason why um, you even have a shot at obtaining grace is because those sins, God kind of is able to look over them. He's kind of able to you know, put them to the side, but you still have those sins with you. And that kind of leads into the next concept of TULIP, which is um, irresistible grace, right? And it's, and if you're familiar with this, it's this idea, well, if God calls you, you don't have any choice in the matter. Um, you, you've been called, you're going to listen to that call. And that really leads into this last one, uh, perseverance of the saints, which just means, um, in simple terms, once saved, always saved. It means that since God chose you, there's nothing you can do to be unchosen. Um, and that's honestly one of the things that many Calvinists take a great amount of comfort in, knowing that no matter how bad they mess up, in their minds, they're always going to be okay. And if they fall away, they weren't saved, they weren't saved to begin with. 
Now, my hope is in those descriptions that I didn't um, create any kind of straw man for the Calvinist. Um, that's kind of, when, in argumentation, what you do a lot of times people will do is they'll say, well, you just believe this. And they will give you a really dumbed-down version of your beliefs, and then they'll take down their own dumbed-down simplification of your beliefs. Now, my goal is not to do that with the Calvinist position. I want to tackle it head-on. I want to discuss it for what it is. And I want us to recognize that a lot of people believe this, and that there's a lot of scholasticism, and there's a lot of um, work done trying to defend their position. Um, so really what today is, is more of a um, kind of brief um, discussion about one of their central verses where they get their doctrine of unconditional election from. Now, we also have to recognize that um, Calvinism, as a virtue, by virtue of its kind of, we're just going to call them unbiblical beliefs, they also have some strange things that they um, kind of believe as a result of those things. And our goal is not necessarily to discuss those things today, um, but, I mean, we will discuss, you know, concepts like this um, limited atonement. So that being said, um, really their central verse for unconditional election, um, and really unconditional election in many ways is a central point of their argument, so we're really tackling this head on. And if you can really take out unconditional election, you kind of can take out all the other points of TULIP. Um, but really they base a lot of their doctrine on Romans chapter 9. So we want to go ahead and turn to Romans chapter 9. We'll be reading a um, rather lengthy section from there. Romans chapter 9, beginning in, in verse... Um, actually, just real quick to give you a heads up. Um, so this part of Romans, God is discussing why the Jews were no longer his um, chosen race and why the Gentiles had found favor in his eyes. So kind of with this in mind, in chapter, in chapter 9 and verse 4, he's speaking about the Israelites. He's speaking about the children of Abraham when he says, They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them, the Jews, belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. But it is not as though the word of God has failed. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham, because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said, about this time next year I will return and Sarah will have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had, yet, had not yet done either good nor bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I hated. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. 
For the scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I have raised you up, that you might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. And then he has mercy on whomever he has mercy, on whomever he wills, and hardens whomever he wills. For will you say to me then, why does he still find fault, or who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, what if he made me like this? Has the potter right? Has the potter no right over the clay to make the same lump of clay unto honor and another unto dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction, in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he has called, not from Jews only, but also from Gentiles. So on first reading of this passage, you say, well, Tim is wrong. This it's, it, this very much on the surface seems to very strongly support many of those points of the tulip doctrine that I've just kind of gone through mentioning. Um, but I, well, I, obviously I disagree. Um, we find here um, some kind of interesting argumentation that Paul is setting up, and I kind of want to elucidate a little bit about um, in argument, a lot of times, I think, at least in mathematics, and I'm assuming also in philosophy, a general way to prove something is you take a specific case, something that you know happened at least one time, and then what you do is you kind of start building on that specific case in order to prove a general concept that is um, kind of sound no matter what. So I'm kind of think. so I think to give an example of that would be, let's say you're working at like Chick-fil-A and your shift is from 6 a.m. to 3 p.m. And around 2 p.m. one day, your manager says, hey, the lunch rush has died down. Why don't you go home early, you know, an hour early, you know, the rest is on the house. So, you know, you get to go home early. Well, then the next day, you know, two o'clock rolls around, the manager says the same thing to you. Well, I get to go home early. That happens enough times, Eventually, you know, you say, well, I guess my hours are not really, they're kind of till two o'clock, aren't they? Um, but you're out, according to your contract, according to everything, your hours are still until three o'clock until you, one day the manager sits down and says, I know the rules say you work till three, but I'm changing the rules. You now work till two. So that's kind of an example of using a specific case. And when that specific case happens enough times, eventually generally a general principle is formed but that general principle is never formed completely until someone sits you down and says these are the rules and these are how they're changing until that happens this special case remains a special case so isaac is the special case that paul is sort of opening up this argument with this is the special case of the child of promise so the child of promise is, I mean, a very interesting kind of theme and concept in the scriptures. Um, but he is using the birth of Isaac to show the difference between those who are born of the will of the flesh and those who are born because of the will of God. Now, if you recall the story of Isaac, you'll recall they had an older brother, Ishmael. Now, Ishmael um, was born to Abraham after Abraham had received a promise from God. God said, I will give you a son. 
But God said, I will give you a son through Sarah. Now, Abraham said, that's not possible. You know, this flesh is too old. Sarah has never had a child. Um, but I'll tell you what, I'm going to make the promise of God happen, but I'm going to do it with Hagar. I'm going to try something else to try to kind of force the hand of God um, to have this promise delivered. Well, of course, Abraham was able to have a child with uh, Hagar named him Ishmael. But ultimately, Ishmael was a child of the will of the flesh because it was the will of Abraham's flesh to have this child. That was not the will of God. The will of God was for Abraham to have a child through Sarah. And eventually, Abraham was able to have a child through Sarah. And there is no two ways about it. The only reason why Abraham had a child through Sarah was because of the promise of God. If it was not for the promise of God, he would not have had a child with Sarah. Isaac would not have been born. Now, the Jews of Paul's age, of, uh, kind of Paul's age said, well, we are the children of promise. We are the children of Isaac, and we are the children of Abraham. But if you think about that, that directly contradicts the point that Paul is trying to make. Because they're saying we are the fleshly descendants. We are the children of flesh of the child of promise. That's impossible. There's no, it's, it is completely impossible for someone to be a child of flesh of the child of promise. The only way to be a child of promise is if you're a child of promise. And that's what the Gentiles did, right? The Gentiles were children of promise because they were children of Abraham's faith. Because Gentiles had faith in the same way that Abraham had faith. So therefore, Gentiles were children of promise in the same way that Isaac was a child of promise. So we've now set up this specific case. Jews are children of the flesh and are not children of God. But Gentiles are children of the promise kind of somehow. Um, but like, why? You know, God has now said you know, this is the case, but... Um, it's kind of difficult for us to understand why did God choose, why did God allow, why did God let people who weren't originally, um, at least in the Jewish mind, supposed to be receiving this promise, and why did, why did he let them in? Well, that's when we start getting into this more general argument that Paul's going to make. He does it through Jacob and Esau. Now, if you are familiar with the story of Jacob and Esau, um, it's um, Isaac had twins, and um, <clears throat> the first twin was coming out, um, the midwife, she saw a hand, and so she tied a, tied a little string around it so she would know this is the first child, and this is the child that's willing to be receiving the birthright. But then, um, you know, there's kind of some struggling, and eventually the first child comes out, but there's, a, there's another baby hanging onto his heel. And so the second child, Jacob, is born like right immediately afterwards, already kind of grabbing at the first child. And here God says in uh, the book of Romans, I chose, Esau, or I chose Jacob, the second child, and I didn't choose the first child. And generally the argument here that Calvinists make, and I think it's a fair argument, is that um, the God, whatever he says is fair, is fair. You can't argue with that because God gets to define things. And when he defines whatever I say is fair goes, God's right. And generally, in my opinion, um, you can disagree with me if you want, but one of the fairest ways to, to decide things is completely arbitrary, completely random, pull a number out of a hat. Because everyone has the same chance, kind of, if that's the case. Everyone has the same, you know, sort of go at it. But 
the, the thing is, with that concept, is it completely ignores all of the biblical history leading up to why would God choose Jacob over Esau? And they're just saying, oh, well, it was completely random. God just said, I'm going to make the younger serve the older. <laughs> that's you know, that's going to be funny. Um, the, if anything, I think the scripture shows that God was merely acting the way that he always acts. Um, so um, I think uh, probably the prototypical, the archetypical, the first example of this happening is with Cain and Abel, right? So Cain w- was born and Eve said, this is it. This is the man that God has given me. This is the man that's going to get us back into the Garden of Eden. And then she has a second kid, names him Abel, because who cares? That's pretty much what his name means. Like, you know, how you have uh, William and Harry, the heir and the spare. Um, um, pretty much Abel was the spare. He was kind of the backup plan. Well, we find very early on that God prefers the spare. God prefers what's left over. God prefers, uh, not, not going as Blake said, but God, God prefers the one that came second. And that's a theme that actually repeats itself several times in Scripture. So even after Cain kills his younger brother, well, God gives him another younger brother that he then chooses over Cain. And then, I mean, it happens again. If I'm not horribly mistaken, I believe that Abraham was the second child. Um, I know, I, I mean, Isaac was a second child. David was like the last child. Um, you know, you have uh, the story of Joseph and Joseph... You know, um, Isaac had many kids before he had, or rather Jacob had many kids before he had Joseph. And even then, when Joseph had to um, give his give his blessing, he gave his blessing to his younger to his younger son instead of to his older son. Um, so I would argue, though, if anything, um, kind of based on all of this, that the scripture seems to indicate that um, there is a condition for your election, and that condition is that you are the second child. Um, which, of course, is untrue, but that shows us something, right? That shows us that God, he's not just making arbitrary choices. All of his choices have a pattern, and that pattern always is that it is the second child that is chosen. But why does God seem to have a preference for the second child? Well, I think that goes back, if you read a little bit in Romans chapter 8, it reads, um, beginning in verse 5, For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. <clears throat> so, um... This really, I, I think, if anything, builds up to the ultimate concept of God choosing the second over the first in the fact that God chose the Gentiles over the Jews. God had been setting up for this for the, entire t- for the entire biblical history. He had been setting up to choose the Gentiles, his second children, like almost showing them preference over his first children, the Gentiles, or the Jews, rather, because the Gentiles proved willing to forego the law or the will of the flesh and to choose instead the will of the spirit. Um, And that's ultimately um, manifested in this concept that um, the Gentiles, so I mean most of us, if not all of us in this room are Gentiles, 
but we benefit more from the story of the patriarchs, the stories of the kings. We benefit more from the law of Moses and the regulations that God gave to the Israelites. We benefit more than Jews today do. Is that not true? Because we understand the spiritual implications, the spiritual impacts of the laws and the ordinances and the histories and the genealogies that God gave to his first children, the Jews. So really, um, what this is showing it is not those who obey, who are born of this same flesh of Abraham or the same flesh of Isaac. It is not those who follow the fleshly law, the law of Moses, but it is those who follow the will of the Spirit. It is those who are elected. And I think, um, you know, kind of reading further down in Romans chapter 9, 8 and 9, you kind of see people like Pharaoh, you see people like Jeremiah, you know, in, individuals who um, a lot of times Calvinists will say, you know, these are great examples of individuals who um, were kind of forced by God's hand to behave in a certain way. But I think we understand that um, even like in our life, while that's not true, um, you know, you think about it. If I walked up to Blake and I pushed him on the floor, um, he might get up and punch me in the face. But you know, if I punch Eric on the, if I push Eric on the floor, he might just say, "Dude, not cool. Why'd you push me on the floor?" So, so what did I like? Who was it that made Blake punch me in the face? Was it me because I pushed him on the floor, or was it him because he decided he was angry and wouldn't punch me? Well, if it was him that decided it, then, or if it was me that made him punch me then why didn't I make Eric punch me? You know? So they'll say these things like Pharaoh was forced by the hand of God to behave this certain way. He was forced to behave according to the will of the flesh. He was forced to do this kind of stuff. But we even understand in our own lives that when God does certain things to us, it's not, um, it's not the things that God does to us that decides how we act. It's how we react to how God treats us that proves to us whether we're following the will of the Spirit or whether we're following the will of um, the flesh. And really, I think that gets down to this you know, foundational question I asked today. How do we know that we are elected? Well, we know that we are elected based on the condition that we are led by the Spirit. And this you know, kind of probably seems a little topsy-turvy, but if we are led by the Spirit, we know that we have been elected. And that is the condition on which we are elected. And really, um, isn't that what this is all about? Isn't that why the second children were chosen over the first? Isn't that why Isaac was given grace over Ishmael? Because, not because they, you know, followed the wills of the flesh, but rather because they followed <clears throat> the will of God. And really, um, this concept has been, you know, um, existent in Romans from the very beginning. In chapter 1, and verse 16, it reads, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God's salvation for everyone who believes, to the Jew first and to also the Gentile. We know that by believing in the gospel of God, it is going to save us. It is powerful enough to save us. It is powerful enough to atone us from all of our sins. It is powerful enough to make us children of promise. It is powerful enough to make us children of faith. And really, um, isn't that what it's all about? Um, Jesus calls it to us in Matthew chapter 11, verse 28. He says, all you who are weary and are heavy laden, come to me and I will give you rest. Isn't that the condition on which we are saved? 
If we come to Jesus, he will give us rest. Um, John chapter 1, verse 16, he says, you know, all those who believe in me have been given the right to be called children of God. They've been given the power to be called the children of God. And um, even in John chapter 12, verse 32, he talks about how he is going to be raised up so that all men everywhere from all nations can come up to him and can see him. So Jesus, his life and his death is a... um, as a beacon of hope to everybody and everybody has the ability to come and all those who do come will be saved and all those who are saved are elected. Um, so kind of uh, just to wrap up those thoughts, we do not need to spend a lot of time worrying about you know whether or not we're saved. We don't need to spend a lot of time worrying whether or not we're doing the, the right thing because we know and we have confidence that God has given us his spirit and because God has given us his spirit, we're able to walk in his spirit. And because we're able to walk in his spirit, we know that we've been elected. We know that we've been chosen. We know that we've been saved. And we know that we have a destination. We know by faith that that destination is secure for us. And that we know that there's nothing that any power on this earth can do that can separate us from that salvation that God has given to us. Um, but furthermore, we need to recognize that it is a call to responsibility for each and every one of us. Um, we know that there are people out there in the world groping in the darkness who do not, who are searching, who are yearning to come to their Savior. They're looking for God. They're looking for hope and looking for salvation. And it is up to us then to be a city on the hill, to be a light to the world, to be a salt in this earth so that those who are groping in the darkness can hear that sweet call of the Savior so that they can come to him. Um, and we know that Jesus, not all who came to Jesus were saved. Um, but we know that all those who came to Jesus and wanted to be saved were saved. And so um, with that, we can rest confidently knowing um, that our calling and that our election is sure. Um, we'll now be led in a final song and then be closed out.